This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to The Feast. Journeys through time in search of a good meal. Hey there, feasting listeners. Just a couple of announcements before we get going with this week's episode. First, thanks to everyone who's listened and reviewed us on iTunes. This really helps to get the word out about the feast. And if you haven't visited our website yet, please consider doing so. You can find so many resources on each of our episodes, from maps and images to historical recipes you can try out for yourself at home. Visit us at thefeastpodcast.org. And finally, the reason we can make this show happen is because of your support. Please consider donating via our website or on our Patreon page. Every dollar goes to helping make more episodes. Monthly subscribers on Patreon will be registered for our wonderful newsletter, The High Table, which features hidden gems and bits of wisdom that didn't make it onto the final podcast. Monthly supporters will also get fabulous feast t-shirts. So please visit Patreon today to keep the feast up and running. Thanks again, everyone. Now, on to this week's episode. The December of 1853 was the wettest anyone in England could remember. Rain fell and fell, drenching the south coast. Most folks were wisely staying indoors, celebrating the Christmas holidays by staying close to warm fires. But not in a particular park in South London, in an area known as Sydenham. A middle-class area mostly, known more for its rail lines and gas plants than its greenery. But this park is about to change all that. That is, if it can survive this weather. Despite the rain or the holiday, the park is alive with what can only be called desperate activity. In the middle of the park sits a gleaming glass structure, resembling nothing so much as a giant's greenhouse. The Crystal Palace, as it's called, the second structure of its kind to bear that name. First unveiled in an exhibition two years ago in London's Hyde Park, this marvel of 19th century glass and ironwork has been shipped south to reopen as a permanent installation, designed to bring the art, history, and culture of the world to the people of London. But today, the structure seems anything but palatial. Still largely a construction site, not destined to open to the public until the following summer, it is filled with all manner of plaster architecture and decorative artwork only half complete. The unrelenting rain of the past few weeks has revealed the workers' worst nightmare. The Crystal Palace leaks. Inside the glass, workers armed with buckets, tarps, and rope desperately work to stem the ever-growing puddles inside. Recently installed columns from the excavation at Pompeii have been hastily draped in cloth. The recently completed plaster gothic arches in the medieval section are starting to droop from the many leaks. But out in the palace's parks, past the Victorian topiary, the Italian paths, and the half-finished fountains, built to be the world's largest, if ever complete, Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins barely noticed the weather. Work was drastically behind schedule. 
The exhibition was to open in June, only a few short months away. His promise to the Crystal Palace months ago had been to create at least 30 sculptures for the park's lakes. But in the cold, wet light of December, only a handful of his creations were anywhere near ready. His drafty and, as he had found out once the rain had started a few weeks ago, leaky workshop was full of half-made creatures, a few still only realized in modeling clay, others partially built, giant scaly arms and legs lurching out of canvas around every corner. Unlike the rest of the Crystal Palace, or its parks, Hawkins was responsible for sculpting not Greek columns or busts of Roman emperors, but much larger creatures, reptilian monsters, whose bones had been sought out by English beachcombers and avid naturalists for years. These strange bits of bone, whose consistency was more like rock than ivory, seemed to suggest such creatures hadn't lived for centuries, if not longer. Ideas and, more often than not, legends about the origins of these bones suggested they came from a prehistoric time, animals perhaps who drowned in the biblical flood. Because of their unusual size, the story went, they had simply been too big to fit onto Noah's Ark. With little else known about the creatures, they came to be known as antediluvian monsters, and until recently, it seemed, they were destined to remain shadowy figures from Earth's earliest days. It had only been in the last 50 years or so, when scholars, armed with the latest classification system, complements of one Carl Linnaeus, as well as the budding field of geology, that new theories about the bones and the kinds of animals they belonged to began to emerge. Scholars hypothesized that the bones were those of strange, lizard-like creatures, coming up with names such as Megalosaurus and Iguanodon to describe them, that reflected both their size and their presumed relationship with modern reptiles. And so it was only in the early 1840s that one of the many scholars at work on the bones, one Richard Owen, who finally coined a term to collectively describe the creatures, dinosaur cobbled together from the Greek to mean terrible lizard. The discovery and identification of these dinosaurs had been a major coup for a field that up until recently had been mostly a hobby for gentlemen scholars or for those who were willing to spend their free time in the dirt and mud looking for bones. Paleontology and geology were still comparatively new sciences. The Reverend William Buckland who had fought and won to establish geology as a discipline at Oxford, and who was responsible for identifying the first jawbone of the Megalosaurus, had lightheartedly referred to his work as undergroundology. But as excited as these scholars were about the new discoveries of their field, it had yet to really capture the imagination of the general public. They were too caught up in the travels of one Charles Darwin, whose voyages to the Galapagos Islands in the 1830s had introduced the English to dozens, if not hundreds, of previously unknown species of animals and plants. Tales of African giant sloths, armadillos, massive flightless birds. This is what the English reading public wanted. Dusty bones and the occasional bit of tooth could hardly rival the colorful exotic animals of Darwin. But Hawkins' sculptures were about to change all that. As part of a massive design plan for the new Crystal Palace and Parks, Hawkins' sculptures would be the final act in a three-dimensional voyage back in time. 
the palace itself would present the grand civilizations of early ages. Courtyards containing plasters of Egyptian obelisks, the markets of Pompeii, the cloisters of medieval Europe. But the historical tour would continue into the gardens of the palace. As one strolled deeper into the parks, visitors would travel further back in time, to the earliest known periods in Earth's history, culminating in a prehistoric lake vista, in which visitors could see these dinosaurs as they would have lived millions of years ago. Such sculptures would be the first displays of their kind. Unlike today, where visitors to natural history museums are often greeted by a giant skeleton of a barosaurus, as in the American Museum of Natural History in New York, or, well, up until last year, a diplodocus, as in the Natural History Museum in London, the general public of mid-19th century England had had little opportunity to see these antediluvian monsters up close. Fully reconstructed dinosaur skeletons weren't yet a feature of natural history museums, something Hawkins would also play a hand in, but not for another 20 years. But from where Hawkins sat in the cold, wet December evening of 1853, even the task of finishing the sculptures was looking ever more unlikely. The looming deadline of the June opening was only part of the problem. The Crystal Palace Company, the business specially formed to transform the wildly successful exhibition of 1851 to a permanent installment in Sydenham, was in danger of proving the rumor mongers true. Accusations of mismanagement, lack of funding, and the overall impossibility of the task threatened to prove all too accurate. Hawkins knew such bad press threatened to shutter the exhibition before it even opened. Investors were getting antsy about the staggering funds the Crystal Palace had asked for in order to complete the project. What Hawkins and the Crystal Palace desperately needed was a feel-good story, something to drum up public excitement for Hawkins sculptures while simultaneously soothing the investors' fraying nerves. Not to mention an attempt to settle the ongoing heated academic debates about the accuracy of his dinosaurs. As a consultant on the sculptures, Hawkins had at his disposal Sir Richard Owen, the lauded dinosaur scholar and royal tutor to the children of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. An impressive name to be attached to the project, to be sure, as the Crystal Palace Company had assured Hawkins when Owen had joined. But what Hawkins had failed to realize was Owen's, shall we say, overwhelming personality. Owen's reputation as a dinosaur scholar was almost matched by stories of his bullish temperament. Hawkins and Owen had already clashed repeatedly on the shape and form of the sculptures, and Owen had threatened to abandon the project several times altogether. While privately, Hawkins couldn't have hoped for anything better, the abandonment of the project by the nation's preeminent dinosaur scholar would be another public relations disaster for the Crystal Palace. No, Owen had to be kept on, whatever the cost. So as Hawkins sat in that leaky studio, surrounded by half-finished dinosaurs, a thought struck him. Why not hold a dinner? The restaurant scene in London was just taking off, after all. It was now the height of fashion to be seen in city dining rooms, taking a drink with one's friends or colleagues. Gentlemen were falling over themselves to join private clubs where only the elite of London society was admitted. Holding a private dinner for the Crystal Palace's investors 
where they could sit in the company of the nation's leading dinosaur scholar, Richard Owen. Well, who would turn that down? Yes, a dinner with Richard Owen as the guest of honor would be just the ticket. Owen would surely come. He'd never turn down the opportunity to stoke his own reputation, particularly in front of moneyed Londoners. But could he be trusted to talk up the Crystal Palace? And more importantly for Hawkins, the dinosaurs? No, Hawkins realized, Owen wouldn't be enough. He might be trustworthy enough to mention the dinosaur exhibit, but Hawkins knew that Owen would remain the star of any such banquet, with the Crystal Palace and his beloved dinosaurs getting only the barest of mentions. Hawkins knew he had to figure out a way to get his dinosaurs front and center, to make them the focal point of the meal. But how? He couldn't very well bring his clay models of the dinosaurs to any restaurant or supper club. Such small specimens wouldn't convey the scale of the project, the sheer massiveness of the creatures he was creating in his studio. No, if anything, he'd be laughed away for bringing such trinkets to a dinner party. If only he could get the investors to see his dinosaurs, to see the massive teeth and scaly limbs he was creating out of concrete and tile. But there was little chance of getting London business investors to tramp all the way down to Sydenham to look at these half-finished creatures, particularly if the rain kept up like this. If only he could hold the dinner in Sydenham, make it close to the actual park itself. But where? There were only pubs and taverns in the neighborhood, nothing that even came close to rivaling the clubs and restaurants of London and certainly not places to hold a dinner to convince business investors to open their wallets. Perhaps he could hold it in the Crystal Palace itself. No, the building was in no state to hold a dinner, and again he'd face the problem of forcing his guests to walk through the cold December rain for 20 minutes, only to see some drafty studio of half-finished models. No wow factor there, he had to admit. As he thought... Hawkins paced the studio. He stood in front of one of his many dinosaur molds, used to cast one of the concrete iguanodons, the pride of the collection, as one of the first full dinosaur specimens dug up from English soil. The thing was indeed monstrous, over 35 feet long and almost as tall as an elephant. Now that's an impressive sight, he thought to himself. Too bad the iguanodon itself wasn't finished, still in pieces throughout his studio. All he had, really, was the mold. But the mold itself still gave the features an awesome size of the prehistoric beast. And it was certainly large enough to fit several men inside, especially as the interior was entirely hollow, without the massive support beams and concrete that would eventually fill the permanent display. Could it be possible? Could he actually hold the dinner inside the iguanodon mold? Now that would be something to travel to Sydenham for. How many people could claim that they had once eaten a meal in a dinosaur? He would have to do something about the state of the studio. It was in no shape for a formal dinner. Something would have to be done about the leaks, of course. But there was the tent and bunting left over from his daughter's recent birthday party. That would do nicely. Yes, it may have been cream and pink, but it would do in a pinch. He could create a tent inside the studio, 
suspended over the dinosaur mold. That would at least solve the problem of the leaks, and would hopefully hide the rest of the studio's less-than-immaculate appearance. He would have to work quickly. Owen was off on another lecture circuit early in the new year. But most of the investors would already be home for the Christmas holidays. Why not hold the dinner on New Year's Eve? It would be the perfect way to usher in the year in which the exhibition was to be unveiled. Yes, it was only two short weeks away, but that was surely manageable. Hawkins looked at the iguanodon mold again. Yes, there was certainly enough space there to seat at least 15 men, maybe more. More than enough space for the investors, Owen, and himself. Perhaps even an invitation to a few of the local newspaper men? Hawkins was friendly with at least a few owners of some of the London rags. This dinner could kill two birds with one stone. Soothe the investors while also drumming up some badly needed good press about the Crystal Palace. Now all that was left was to write the invitations. It was the strangest dinner invitation Herbert Ingram, the owner of the London Illustrated News, could remember ever receiving. A gentleman had shown up at his door during his annual Christmas party. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Bearing a formal card addressed by hand. Invitations for parties this far into the Christmas season were highly unusual, and Ingram, being a man of some importance about town, as he was fond of telling people, was already booked solid through the new year. But the sender's name caught his eye. Waterhouse Hawkins? He had known the man for some time, a quite respected illustrator. He had done a few of the illustrations for Darwin's Beagle Voyages, and had been elected a member of the Royal Society of the Arts a few years back. Ingram had even printed a few of Hawkins' exotic animal drawings in the Illustrated News. It seemed his London subscribers were keen to read all they could about the new animals being discovered at the far reaches of the globe. But what was this invitation Hawkins had sent? A gallery opening, perhaps? Another exhibition? Sure, the invitation had started out usually enough. Mr. Waterhouse Hawkins requests the honor of Mr. Ingram's company at dinner. Nothing unusual there. What made anyone, and certainly Herbert Ingram, look twice at the invitation was the phrase that followed. The dinner is to be held in the Iguanodon at the Crystal Palace on Saturday evening, December the 31st of 1853 at 5 o'clock. Well, if that hadn't been enough to rouse the curiosity of any sensible newspaper man, the words had been written on what looked like the wing of an outstretched lizard probably one of those prehistoric monsters Hawkins was creating for the Crystal Palace, or so the rumor went. What's more, beyond the lizard's wing, the invitation showed a detailed illustration of a dinner table 
actually set up in another one of those antediluvian lizards. This must be the iguanodon Hawkins was talking about. A dinner inside a monster? Well, this was something Ingram would have to see. And so, the evening of the 31st finally arrived. Of course, the weather had not improved. Cold rain and wind battered the dinner guests' carriages as they pulled up to Hawkins' studio. Hawkins himself stood nervously at the doorway, hardly believing that the whole thing had actually come together. He had only just changed into his formal dinner jacket, having spent most of the day on the final touches of the decoration and dinner arrangements. His daughter's birthday tent had been just the ticket. It perfectly covered the iguanodon, conveniently hiding the rest of the drafty studio from his guests. So what if it was cream and pink? Who would notice such things when a massive prehistoric monster was their dinner table? His illustrated invitations had worked a treat. Everyone had eagerly accepted, sometimes changing travel plans in order to attend the dinner. Owen also had, of course, accepted his place as the guest of honor, insisting alongside the right to sit, literally, at the head of the table, where the brains of the iguanodon would have once been. Owen had also suggested, or rather insisted, on the banners that now hung above the iguanodon, draped from the tent poles, naming four great scholars of the prehistoric world. George Cuvier, the French zoologist whose groundbreaking studies of fossils had spearheaded the field of paleontology, William Buckland, the first English geologist who had identified the species of the Megalosaurus from a mere jawbone. Unsurprisingly, Owen had insisted that his own name be on a banner. But interestingly, he had also asked that Gideon Mantell, Owen's famous scholarly rival, also be included on a banner. Mantell, who was largely responsible for identifying and describing the very creature they were about to have dinner in, the Iguanodon, had died only the previous year. Owen, never one to let an academic debate die, had been responsible for penning a stinging obituary of the man in a literary gazette, where he had denounced Mantell as a scholarly fraud. Although the obituary had technically been published anonymously, it was an open secret that Owen had been the author. Now, a year later, perhaps Owen was feeling the sting of regret of speaking so ill about the dead. Time did heal all wounds. Perhaps Owen was softening in his old age. Hawkins could worry about Owen later. The investors had all shown up on cue, along with some of Hawkins' artist and naturalist friends. Owen had also invited the scholar Edward Forbes, whose work on geology had led to his prestigious appointment as the first-ever professor of natural history at the recently opened Royal School of Mines. And, of course, the newspaperman Edward Ingram, who, like his fellow diners, couldn't turn down such an unusual invitation, and even promised to publish an account of the dinner in next week's Illustrated News. This was exactly the kind of publicity Hawkins had been hoping for. All that lay between him and saving his dinosaur creations was one simple dinner. He just hoped Owen would keep his mouth shut. The Iguanodon, for its part, had dressed for the occasion, the layers of studio dust removed, 
Hawkins had even painted the mold to better resemble the scaly, earthy green of the prehistoric creature. Given the size of the animal, Hawkins had had a construction team build a small series of steps up to the mold, including a platform around the creature to allow the waiters access to the two dinner tables, arranged in the shape of a T. Alongside the banners, a small chandelier was suspended from the tent's interior, giving the whole dinner the feeling of being on an elaborately formal safari. Despite the perhaps unusual surroundings, dinner was to be according to the height of fashion, in the French style. How to feed his guests had proven quite the challenge for Hawkins, as understandably, his studio didn't come equipped with a kitchen. But a well-earned, timely Christmas bonus to his house cook, and the promise not to offer more than 15 dishes, had convinced her to help with the meal. She had been able to prepare most of the dishes back in his home in London, transporting them carefully via carriage to the studio. A few more well-placed banknotes had persuaded a local tavern keeper in the nearby village of Penge to let his cook reheat what she needed in the tavern kitchens, such as the roasts and game. Carriages had been going back and forth between the tavern and the studio all day, and now his overworked cook was in the back of the studio, hastily decorating the serving platters for the meal. As was customary for formal dinners in the 1850s, after a selection of soups, the meal was set out in two large courses, with all dishes laid out before the diners to sample as they saw fit. Dressed fish with hollandaise sauce sat alongside pigeon pie and roast turkey. Traditional French entrees such as lamb chops with tomatoes and partridge accompanied the usual game course, including pheasants, woodcocks, and snipes. His cook, knowing perhaps of his sweet tooth, had spared no effort on the desserts, presenting his guests with varieties of French pastry, fruit jelly, and charlotte russe, alongside plums, grapes, and apples. All quite the treat, given the winter season. Now, in comparison with many other formal dinners, the fare may have seemed rather sparse, without the wide range of dishes on offer at more elaborate banquets. But the guests may have been predisposed to forgive the limited menu, given the circumstances of the dinner. The iguanodon may have been a giant prehistoric animal, but asking it to seat 21 gentlemen and hold more than 15 dishes at a time may have been a bit much to ask. After the dishes were cleared and the men sat talking and drinking over a glass of sherry or claret, Owen cleared his throat, drawing everyone's eye to the head of the table. This was the moment Hawkins had been fearing all night. As the guest of honor, it was Owen's right to propose a toast to the assembled company. But who knew what would come out of Owen's mouth? Would he critique the iguanodon in which she currently stood? knowing full well that Hawkins had not taken all of Owen's ideas about how the beast should look on board? There was really no telling what he would say. Hawkins only prayed that Owen wouldn't say anything that Ingram would later reprint with glee for his 100,000 readers. Owen had the power to crush Hawkins' sculptures right here and now. Owen raised his glass. To progress, he proclaimed simply. Perhaps Hawkins would be safe after all. But when the gentlemen had all drunk, Owen raised his glass again, and Hawkins' heart sank. But to his, 
and to everyone else at the table's surprise, Owen offered up nothing but praise for his dinosaur collaborator. It has been a great source of pleasure to aid so important an undertaking by assisting, with instruction and direction, a gentleman who possesses the rarely united capabilities of an anatomist, naturalist, and practical artist. Well, Hawkins practically fell out of his chair. Perhaps the sherry or claret was starting to affect his grip on things. Did Owen just compliment him? But Owen continued, praising the progress of the field of fossil studies, even going so far as to acknowledge Mantell's death as a loss to scholarship. The first time Hawkins, or anyone, had heard Owen speak positively about his former rival. But, even at his most forgiving, Owen was still Owen. Of course, my erstwhile colleague believed the great Iguanodon to be over 75 feet long, he said wryly, making a pointed look around the table. If only that had been so, we could have easily fit another 25 gentlemen in here. The table laughed at Owen's for once good-natured reference to his and Mantell's long-standing disagreement over the Iguanodon's shape and size. And with that, the threat was over, and the guests relaxed visibly, safe in the knowledge that they wouldn't be subjected to one of Owen's rants. At least, not tonight. The general good mood carried on long into the night. The company even agreed to travel together back to the city by rail, bounding off into the cold night, singing an old tavern song about how the jolly old beast had life in him again. A fitting tribute to the dinosaur they had just dined in. Hawkins stayed behind, watching the men head gleefully off into the night, roaring loudly at the end of every chorus. When asked later, he told reporters the noise resembled nothing so much as what he presumed a herd of iguanodons sounded like. A week later, Ingram was true to his word and published a glowing article about the dinosaur dinner in the London Illustrated News, even including an illustration of the meal happily provided by Hawkins himself. News of the unusual dinner spread to a number of local papers. The newspaper Punch reported on the story, calling it Fun in a Fossil, applauding Hawkins's creativity in holding the meal in such unusual surroundings. The stories did exactly as Hawkins had hoped. People were once again interested in the Crystal Palace, and specifically, the chance for the public to see these prehistoric beasts with their own eyes. When Queen Victoria officially opened the exhibition on June 10th of 1854, over 40,000 people came to watch the festivities. Of course, Richard Owen was in attendance, escorting the French Emperor Napoleon III, as well as the King of Portugal through the parks. Hawkins's dinosaurs were the highlight of the gardens, and he was soon in demand all over the world to create similar prehistoric creatures for some of the grandest gardens in the world, including Central Park, in New York City. While in the U.S., Hawkins would also be responsible for mounting the first publicly displayed dinosaur skeleton at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. His work would inspire museum curators for the next 150 years, paving the road to the now iconic dinosaur displays featured in so many natural history museums. Hawkins's dinosaurs remained a visitor attraction throughout the rest of the 19th century and even outlasted the Crystal Palace itself, 
which burned to the ground in the 1930s. The dinosaurs have been repaired and restored a number of times, and are now officially listed as Grade 1 historic buildings. The same designation given to English architectural icons, such as Buckingham Palace and London's Tower Bridge. Jurassic Park, the land before time, even Godzilla or King Kong. It's fair to say our culture is obsessed with prehistoric beasts. But it wasn't always the case. Just 150 years ago, no child would know their T-Rex from their pterodactyl, or even dream of uncovering dusty bones as a future career. Hawkins's sculptures helped to fuel the dinomania that is such a huge part of our modern culture. But without an inspired idea that led to one of the strangest dinners London may have ever seen, dinosaurs may have remained a pet project of just a few scientists and scholars. The success and publicity of Hawkins's Iguanodon dinner helped to ensure Hawkins's sculptures were the main attraction of the Crystal Palace, with over 200,000 visitors coming to see the sculptures in just over a decade, introducing thousands to the animals who had roamed the Earth millions of years ago. Sculptures that helped to capture the imagination of the English public and eventually the world, creating an enduring fascination with dinosaurs that has lasted until the modern day. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Huge thanks go to our production team this week, our resident technical specialist, Mike Port, and our new research assistant, Megan Kirby. We'll put up some images from Hawkins' Dinosaur Dinner on our webpage, which you can find at thefeastpodcast.org, as well as both the invitation and menus from the evening, with some recipes that you can try out for yourself if you feel like recreating the Iguanodon Feast at home. We'll also include a link to the song Hawkins referred to in his interview about the dinner. A group at Cambridge University has brought the song back to life with a brand new YouTube video. If you're interested in reading more about Owen, Hawkins, or some of the other English pioneers of paleontology and geology, a great book is Deborah Cadbury's Dinosaur Hunters, which details the origins and developments of the field in the early 19th century. She also talks quite a bit about some of the details of the Iguanodon dinner if you're interested in learning more. Other great resources on dinosaurs and the history of paleontology, as well as the soundtrack for this episode, can all be found on our website. And if you've been to the Crystal Palace and have seen Hawkins' sculptures for yourself, we'd love to see pictures. Share them via our Instagram account. We're at feast underscore podcast. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you access your podcasts. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back in three weeks with another meal from history. Until then, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.